in the company of Jonathan. And he couldn't have seen him better company than that. And then the sisters and young people as we come to consider in these early chapters of the life of David, his relationship to Jonathan, and his relationship to Saul was an object lesson for every one of us here in this room this evening. For as I pointed out on that occasion, as the Bible testifies, that both David and brother Jonathan and Saul loved David. So did they. And sometimes we feel that Saul had nothing in his heart except hatred towards David. The scriptures say that that's not true. The scriptures say that Saul loved him greatly, and he did. But there was a difference between the love that Saul had for David and the love that Jonathan had for him. A difference, brothers and sisters, young people, that in the New Testament there are two words to express the love which these two men held for David, for Saul's love was based upon the benefits he received from David. The benefits he received from the praying of David upon the heart, from the companionship of one who was obviously blessed of God, and in whom he fought. The very epitome of what he himself would have loved to have been, but was never able to bring into subjection with the flesh to the will of God. He was never able, brethren and sisters, to rise above, rise above himself, that God might be with him. And there is a full reflection in the confidence of that bird in the fields of Bethlehem. The position which he himself would dearly love to occupy, that Yahweh had left him. And he could see that Yahweh was residing in that fall. And the benefit he received from the company of David caused him to love him greatly. But it was a love, brothers and sisters, which was not based upon the word of God. It was not a sacrificial love, far from it. It was an affinity with David based upon many other nations and benefits received. Jonathan's love turns into that, brothers and sisters, as light turns into darkness. And Jonathan's love was agape love. Although that word is not used in the Old Testament, that's the sort of love that Jonathan had for David. And as he listened to David, he turned him to Saul about his father's house and his, and his state of Israel. Jonathan Saul became entangled with David and he loved him with a love very insistent which was sacrificial. And he not only saw in that boy, he not only saw in him a reflection of the divine characteristics, but he knew that this boy, by the very appearance of him, by the way he used great distress in his speech, by the faith that he had, that he was destined to be the king of Israel. It was so obvious to Jonathan. And he bowed before it in all humility, even though he was a much older man. In the record of Chronicles, brothers and sisters, he, Jonathan was the firstborn of Saul, as I pointed out last night. His process was the fourth son of Saul. And this process came to be thrown at the age of 40 when David was 30. So this process was 10 years older than David. And there were three boys before him, and Jonathan was the firstborn. How much older was Jonathan than David? I would presume something like 20 years. But he died before the onslaught of this boy. You can see that inevitably the characteristics of this boy was going to take the in him by the power of his foot was going to carry him to the throne. And a big person sister. And when it ultimately brought that boy to the throne, and when we come to consider those sections, I want to point out to you the attitude of mine, 
that David had when he actually sat on that throne. And it's nothing less than remarkable what that verse thought as he sat up on the throne, not a boy, but of course a man. When he sat up on that throne, it's remarkable what he was he had that David could see that Yahweh had exalted his kingdom because of the people of Israel. David could see that he was there for no reason than for the preservation of the people of Israel. And that's what carried him to the throne, brothers and sisters. That's what carried him to the throne because he saw himself as a tiny part in the midst of a mighty piece of machinery. The machinery of which was going to preserve Israel and prosperity in the earth that they might ultimately reflect glory to God. And there were men all around it who would cut his throat, cut their brother's throat, and cut every throat in sight to sit upon that throne for a vast little reason than that. And he lived and moved amongst them. And he got glory to them. And as he went towards the throne, not even aspiring to it, but taking that course at the end of the end of the throne, on the tide of popular opinion, they carried him to the throne. He had men all around him. They were fighting their way through clubs to get there. But he never made it, doesn't he, see? Because he had the motive that was driving in there was so far removed from the motive that dictated the life of David. And those are the things that they learn. And the things that they expect in this record. And they are restored. Each night with envy. Loving the boy, yes, he didn't help but love him. But each night with envy, and there is Jonathan. They can talk to you. And in the first time we talk to our readers, we have Jonathan going to the greatness of David. And in the first time we talk to our readers in verses 3 and 4, we read, and Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. He gave it to David. And he promised, even to his soul, and to his soul, and to his soul. The soul, and this is his son's children. As they were sitting on the one, they come to the second chapter one. David wrote a song and called it the song of the bow, and it was dedicated to his mother, Jonathan. And here was Jonathan taking his equipment to his own bow and giving him to David. David had refused the army of force. And he didn't refuse this. And then Jonathan handed him that bow, David and Sissy. It was a wonderful symbolic act, but he was bowing to the inevitable and recognizing it long before it ever came and preparing for himself a greatness which he never came to because of the folly of his father. And there is the affinity which is between David and Jonathan. But when we turn the page and read in verse 4 of the way that David and Saul grew apart and the reason why they grew apart. And Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with him and was departed from Saul. And there, brothers and sisters, lay the basic difference between Saul and David. And yet as men, as human beings, as flesh and blood, there was an affinity between them. David could write of Saul and he was lovely and pleasant and he said. He could call upon the daughters of Israel to lament for a really great man. For he was a great man in the moments of greatness, 
that he failed in that position. But here was the basic difference between the two of them being of existence, not personality. They didn't hate each other in the absolute sense. It was mad ambition that had come between the two of them, and the fact that one boy gave attention to the Bible and the other man did not. And that was the thing that sent them on two different crosses. And yet both of them would have loved to have chosen a cross which would have kept them together. And David was prepared to do that, never prepared to compromise his principles. But he was prepared to go and bow down before Saul and recognize he was the king of Israel. If Saul would only let him. The crazy, stupid ambition would never allow Saul to do likewise. And would never allow Saul to accept David to his football again. And those are the things which divided them. A tragedy, brethren and sisters. A tragedy. And the things need to divide us. As you study the Bible, and I see in your actions in your life that you love it, and if I can find the strength in the mercy of God to do likewise, and you see in my actions that I love it, we love each other. And the gates of hell will never prevail against that. But all the affection in the world will never hold us together if as a community we slip down the middle where one says it's not necessary to study the Bible and the other one says that it is. And inevitably, as minds develop and as minds degenerate, however much our filial affection will be, we'll go on divergent courses and the result will be a disaster which need never be if brethren and sisters as individuals study the scriptures and practice those things in their life. And as we do those things, all differences will be sunk. But it depends not on attending meetings, brothers and sisters, and young people. It depends, it depends not upon giving this service to one group or another group. Anybody who thinks that they're coming to the kingdom of God on a group concession ticket is headed for disaster. They're not going to get in. Be like David. Go straight down the line on the basis of the truth. And the lovers of the truth will love you. And all else will be manifest. Never deviate from it. And be like David, brethren and sisters and young people. Whilst never deviating from that straight line, straight down the line towards the kingdom of God. Be like David and turn to the left and to the right and invite all the companies that work. And leave the lovers blocked down that line to the best of your ability. And if you're a member of the flock and not a leader, then try and encourage those around you to walk behind those who propound the truth of God's word in all its purity and all its beauty. And that's what David endeavoured to do. And the tide of popular opinion that swept David to the throne was enormous as the time came. And the people poured over the waters of Judah from all directions and were swept along in a tide of popular opinion because they could see a man that was determined to do right even though sometimes what he did gave his political enemy even advantage. So what if the thing was right, says David? And Israel saw in this man a man whose determination was to do right somewhat day. And that's what carried him to the throne. But for the time being, he's got to be an outcast. And we read him at 18th chapter, going back to verse 7. But after one of the wars against the Philistines, after his slaying of Goliath, Verse 6, it came to pass as they, as they came when David was returned to the slaughter of the Philistines. But the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tablets, with joy and instruments of music. 
And the women answered one another as they cried and said, Saul has slain his thousand. And David is ten thousand. And you can imagine the scene, brothers and sisters, that after the slaying of Goliath, there followed more wars against the Philistines, because the word Philistines is in the plural there, as the margin indicates. But there was more wars against the Philistines, and David and Saul were turning. Saul had already suffered this despondency. These periods of morose despondency, which he went into the, to the very depth of the thing, because Yahweh had rejected him. He was already suffering from that. He was on the course to his family. And now as he came back, and the women came out dancing and singing over the victories of Israel, Saul has slain his thousands, the great big smile. David has slain his ten thousand. Ten thousand. Ah, ten thousand, is it? And burning with him. The anger, the cruel anger of envy. Ten thousand. Ten thousand. And we're leading into it. If things in the Bible had a been there, they would have went off like water off a duck's back. They were not there. And those words, ten thousand, went right into his inner. Ten thousand. That one of it is. And the eyed in from that day forward. There's a lesson. And how often is it in a collegial life, brethren and sisters? Young people. Especially amongst those who would aspire to notoriety from one brother compared to another. They speak sometimes. Never go in. If what we got inside of us is something that says, I don't care two feet as to what the accuser thinks about my position or my relative ability, who cares? In the ultimate president, all that matters is the divine estimation of our character. And John the Baptist was like that. You know, when they went out in the wilderness to him, they said, Who are you? But as I tell you, I'm not. I'm not the Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. And that was Jonathan's outlook. A wonderful outlook. And there was no greater prophet there among women at that time than John the Baptist. No greater prophet. And what made him great? The thing that made him great, brothers and sisters and young people, was that he was prepared to be small. But Paul was not like that. Ten thousand in birth. And the idea from that day forward. And the envy ate so deeply into his brother and sister that he tried on a several occasions, as you well know, to secure the life of David. He tried to spear him to death as this anger overcame him. And you know the particular thing? As David came before him in a, in a little circle, which Saul used to laugh, with David and his Jonathan, with Abner and Saul, and others too, who were gathered at his throne, Saul used to love those occasions. But gradually, brothers and sisters, the things of the Spirit which had bound that little group together originally, the things of the Spirit were going out of Saul's mind, and the struggling in him was being won by the power and the mastery of envy. And as the sweet music would be playing, then on other occasions it overcome his despondency, yet envy came in like a black cloud of despair, and the fingers would grip the, that spear, and the knuckles would stand out white. Ten thousand! Ten thousand, is it? And then stayed with hell that traveller. And again and again, David escaped out of his grip. 
And we wonder sometimes, why did David put up with that? Why did anybody put up with it? They used evidence. This was was not the real soul that had begun the kingdom. They could see another spirit moving over here. He was not always like this. The man was on the road to insanity, driven there by envy. He never have been. He was given attention to the things of God. Jonathan secured David's release temporarily in the chapter 9 in the 19th chapter. Jonathan had to put a good word in for David. Jeopardizing his own position. We read in the 19th chapter in verse 6. But Saul hearkened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore as Yahweh liveth. He shall not be slain. And Jonathan gained to David a temporary respite. What happened? There was another war with the Philistines. David went out. David was victorious. Verse 9, and the evil spirit from Yahweh was upon Saul. And it seemed, brethren and sisters, that David was a great guy when he took his rightful position at Saul's footstool. But whenever there was a war with the Philistines, and David went out and did the things that Saul never seemed to be able to accomplish, then his evil spirit overcame him. So there was an evil spirit from Yahweh. He doesn't send evil spirits in that sense, brethren and sisters. The circumstances was what brought the evil spirit upon Paul. I believe the evil spirit was nothing more or less of this black despondency which overcame him. And why was it from Yahweh? Because Yahweh was with David. Because one day he went out and fought the Philistines, it was Yahweh that was giving him the victory. And it was that victory that was making Saul do what he did. And how often is it? When you talk to brethren and sisters and young people, and you talk to brethren, prominent brethren, and they've got good words for certain people, you go to those people, and of course they've got good words for them. They're forever praising them out. They're wonderful people. You let those people rise up and take a prominent part to challenge the brother. They are the blackest criminals in the Ecclesia. They're all right when they take their place. But they're not all right when they do something for God. Because I've got the sole right to do things for God. Nobody else has got that right. You sit at my football, listen to what I've got to say, and tell everybody what a wonderful guy I am, and you're too tricky. But don't you dare challenge my authorities and so on. And whenever David went out and fought the Philistines, this black moon came upon Saul because he knew before David returned that he would be victorious. He had this knowledge in him. And time and time again, he accepts the fact that he knew that Yahweh was with David and that David would become king. What a fool he was, brothers and sisters. And he knew the things in the word of God, but he wasn't mad at them. Until finally, David has to, has to escape from his own house through a window. And the house he lived in, he lived in with Saul's own daughter, Michael. Michael, of course, was a younger daughter. Saul evidently had two daughters. One was called Medad, the other one, Michael. Medad was promised to David in marriage because of his victory over the Philistines, the Goliath. Saul didn't honor that promise, as he didn't honor many promises. And he gave Medad into to wife to a man called Adriel. That marriage ended in absolute tragedy. They lost five children, five boys. They were hung together. Hung up in the sun together. And that marriage ended in tragedy. 
If God had kept his promise, it would never have happened. And boys, boys, were hung up with that one family because of that. You see what happens, brothers and sisters, when the word of God is disobeyed? See what happens when men deviate from the truth and fall for that he could cut off his nose to side his face? He wouldn't give this girl this to David's blowing. I'll give him to the devil. I said, oh, he did. And look what happened. Five boys swinging in the breeze, breaking mother and father's heart. And it's never happened. And Michael loved David and saw for that. Ah, oh, this is a good thing. If he wants this girl, he can have her. But it'll cost him. It'll cost him the fourth thing with a hundred Philistines. Let him get that. And David brought back two hundred. Two hundred. God. But it'll matter. And this girl loved David. And her love for David was precisely the same love that her father had for David. And she was a chick off the old block. And her love for David, brothers and sisters, was based upon nothing else but that filial affection. And what woman wouldn't, I'll tell you. I hope my wife wouldn't, but nevertheless, there was, a, there was an attraction here that, that Michael loved David. And of course, on this occasion, we read in verse 12 that Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled of the state. In the first of Samuel chapter 9 and verse 12, so that she let him down from a window and he went and fled and escaped from her own father. And she had to do that. What a shame this man had brought upon the nation. And you know, we're going to watch the degradation of Saul. It's unbelievable the things that he did. What a shame for a man to send men to his own daughter's home that they might encompass, uh, encompass that home to take his son-in-law right out of the same house where his daughter lived. What a shame this was. And you know, David wrote a psalm on the basis of this occasion, brothers and sisters. It's recorded in Psalm 59. He wrote a psalm on this occasion. Psalm 59. The heading of which, which is part, by the way, of the original text. Not what the translators put there, but the words for the chief musician when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. And this was the occasion when they accomplished the house of Michael. And this was the mind of David in verse 3 to verse 6. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against, against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Yahweh. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold Thou therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen, be not merciful to any wicked transgression. They return at evening, they make a noise like a dog, and go about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth, pause in their lips, for who say they shut here? And there David, brethren and sisters, called out his mind as the dogs of Saul were yapping around the, the, door, the doors of the house of, of David and Michael, waiting to take him. Not for his transgression, not for his sin. His hands were clean, brethren and sisters. And he was hunted. Hunted by a pack of dogs. And down through the window he went. And where did you go? On, on, a, on an occasion like that. Where did you go, brethren and sisters? Where did you flee to? David went straight to the place he knew where he could gain strength. He went like a straight as a die to the place he could gain strength. 
So David fled, we read in verse 8 into the first of Samuel 19, that David fled and escaped and came to Samuel to Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Told him all that Saul had done to him. And he came to Samuel at Ramah. Oh, what a wonderful occasion. First, Ramah, which is just north, it's not on the map, unfortunately, but just north of Jerusalem. Not like many far from Gibeah where Saul had his house and where David lived. He went to, to, to Samuel at Ramah, and David and sisters, what was Samuel doing? Samuel was a fading out of the picture. He was an old man by this time. He had done all that he could to bring this nation to God, until they said, let us have a king like all the other nations. And the, the power to guide this people went out of Samuel's hands, and he found that power reigning. He could do little to avert the disaster that was coming upon the people, and he warned them about Saul. He warned Saul. He did all that he could, and he went to his house at Ramah, and he went around in circuit. Bethel, Mizpah, Gilgal, Ramah. Bethel, Mizpah, Gilgal, Ramah, moving around in a tight circle, attracting to him people who wanted to be attracted. He didn't go from Ben to Beersheba in a tight circle. Ramah, Mizpah, Bethel, Gilgal, round and round he went, and he attracted to him those in Israel who wanted to be attracted. And we read in verse 20 that Samuel was standing as appointed over the prophets of God. He was standing as appointed over the prophets of God and the Spirit of God was there amongst that group. And David, like a magnet, was attracted to that group, brethren and sisters. He was attracted like a magnet to that little group in whom the Spirit of God was found. And Samuel was, of course, establishing what was known in Israel as the school of the prophets. And this is the reason, I believe, that twice in the book of Acts that Samuel is said to be the first of the prophets. He wasn't the first of the prophets. Abraham was a prophet. But Samuel was the first of a new line of prophets. Samuel was the man who stood between the transition period of judges to kings. And because of that period that every man did that was his right in his own eyes, Samuel was not only prophet, he was priest and he was king. And he incorporated in one man the whole principles of deity. But he could have no more effect upon his people. But what he had done was bound together tightly a little tight-knit group, known as the prophets here. And he was appointed over them. And there David fled, brethren and sisters. And there he found a whole atmosphere permeated by the power of the word of God. And there was a group of brethren and sisters gathered together. And the spirit of God was upon them. And Samuel there directing all the time. And David went straight down there in trouble. And he found there, then, which was a refuge, as he never found anywhere else in all his wandering. He slipped out of caves, he shot around the corners of mountains, he hid behind bushes, he got out of David's grass, uh, Saul's grass on many occasions. But here he had the greatest refuge of all, for he stood in an atmosphere of the Spirit of God, and as the messenger of Saul came into the atmosphere to grab him, the atmosphere grabbed them and charge them with the same spirit. So that messenger after messenger came into the atmosphere. And they couldn't take hold of David. Rather the spirit of God took hold of them until the king himself thought he'd come down and solve the situation. And the spirit of God overcame Saul. And wasn't it a tragedy that the spirit of God hadn't done that right from the beginning. And there was a little ray of light in the, in the lifetime of Saul. But he stripped off his clothes, his outer garments, I believe, is mentioned here. In reverence, and Samuel prophesied in like manner. He prophesied, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God gripped him. Why didn't it grip him from the beginning? And why couldn't that Spirit have permeated the whole nation? Why couldn't it? 
because men wanted to be bought. That's why. And they would not, they would not accept the fact that in the dissemination of the word of God, that there are certain men that God selects. Whatever reason he may have, that's not for us to question. There are certain men that he selects for the dissemination of that word. And there are other men who didn't have that ability who refused to accept the fact that this was God's men. But if they had it accepted, and if Samuel was still appointed over to all the people and put that little tight-knit group around that circle, the Roma, and if he was appointed over all Israel's residences, who's dictating to them the terms of the Spirit of God, not his own spirit, and teaching in all humility the power of the word. And if that spirit was from Dan to Beersheba, from the Mediterranean, right across the hills of Gilead, then all the nation would have been well together. But it wasn't. It was only to be found in that little tight knit group. And David ran straight into it. And he never had that great position in his life. Because anybody who ran into it was overcome by it. That's the answer to all our present problems. It's as simple as ABC. But you try to put that into operation. You just try to put that into operation. It won't work. What if you say it's so simple and it won't work? Why doesn't it work? You know why? Because Bible study is biblical. Not only is it biblical, but it takes time. And time means that we can't do what we want. And it means that when we want to be earning money, we can't be affording to be earning money, we've got to be earning knowledge. It means that when we want to go out, and enjoy the pleasures of the world, and not allow to, if we're going to get something out of the Bible. And you'll never in this society, not even in our own society, get that spirit within all the ecclesias because you haven't got the people who are determined, like Samuel was, to get down to that book and to so knit a group together that the Spirit of God had absolutely charged the whole world. So that they didn't have to fight. They didn't have to fight. All they did to their enemies was to invite them down and have a look at them. And then the enemies came, they were overcome by what was going on. There's no greater defense than that, brethren and sisters. And what a wonderful thing it would have been. But if each of the enemies that had come had gone away and maintained that spirit, they wouldn't have any enemies. And there David sought refuge. There was real power. But it didn't last for David. For he knew, brethren and sisters, that this was only a temporary effect upon Saul's message with a bomb Saul. And he knew that he must go back and seek strength from another source also, that he might have avenues of escape, but he didn't want to run away. He didn't want to run away. You know why David didn't want to run away? He said to himself later on, we'll come to the section, but I'll mention it now. Do you know why David didn't want to run away from himself? He was frightened to leave the truth. Do you know what That's a positive fact. But David's one great fear in his life was but if Saul kept him away long enough in the worship of God, he would strike. He said that. He said that to Saul himself. That was the thing that he feared most of all. But if Saul kept him long away long enough in the worship of God, and would be brothers and sisters, he would stray from the truth. And so he went straight back to Gibeah. And he got out of Jonathan. I don't want to run away, Jonathan. What would you do for me? What can you do? And Jonathan says, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll do my best. He couldn't do any more. And so Jonathan, in the 20th chapter of the first of Samuel, does his best. And as the custom was that during the course of the new moon, as we read in verse 5, 
David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. So let me go that I may hide myself in the field under the third day at even. And David knew that his place would be missed, that his place would be empty, and so was missing. Now here's a feast of the new moon. Oh, what a terrific thing this was. Look, every time a new moon appeared in the, in the, in the heavens in Israel, it was a symbol to Israel of the beginning of months. The Passover started with the new moon. The word for month is the same word for new moon. But on the feast of the new moon, what they did under the law of Moses was they multiplied burnt offerings and peace offerings. The reason being that as the moon renewed itself to grow to fullness, so every month Israel should renew itself to grow to fullness. Consequently, instead of multiplying sin offerings and burnt offerings, they, or rather sin offerings and trespass offerings, they multiplied the burnt offerings, which was the offering of dedication. So that David says, blow up the trumpet of the new moon. And it was over the burnt offerings, they blew the trumpet to call God's attention to the dedication which they were offering unto him. And here Saul in Gibeah had incorporated the principle of the law in his own house. An excellent thing. But what hypocrisy when him and Abner sat with Jonathan and David and the whole atmosphere was charged with electricity of hatred and of anger. And what were they remembering when the, 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 moon, the moon renewed her strength? Their dedication to Yahweh, that's what they should have been remembering. And David wanted to remember it. He wanted to be in that present system. He wanted to be amongst that society. But he knew that if he went there, this would be far from the thought of Saul. And he insisted all that, and there was nobody in that room more attentive than Saul to where David was. Not he, eh? Where is he? And he's not still very ten thousand. Ah, ten thousand. What should he be thinking when you learn? This shall be a beginning of months unto you. The past of the land, slain, that he might redeem the unclean out of Egypt. God giving the gift of his, of his son for the sins of the world. This is what should have been turning out in Saul's mind. Rededication to the truth for the power of Israel. Let David come in and sit down and we'll talk about the truth. Oh no, where is he? And he was missed. And finally, Jonathan makes an appeal for him. And in verse 30 we read that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Kindled against Jonathan. He said, Thou son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thy own confusion and to the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established by thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, and he shall surely die. Verse 34. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David, because his father had done him shame. Listen to that, brother and sister. His father, Saul, the man that Jonathan loved deeply, deeply he loved him. The man that Jonathan was never disunited from, not even in death, to David. The boy who had given his father unqualified allegiance when Saul stood for the prison, qualified allegiance when he went against David. That had given him allegiance when he stood for the truth. A boy who was never prepared for him, even though he knew the blackness of his father's heart to run his father down, but to stand behind his dad to the best of his ability and to try as best he could to heal the rift between the two. What a splendid fellow and this sad madman. His own father growing a spirit and David Jonathan leaping up in fierce anger. Yes, even Jonathan can get angry. And what did he say? He was grieved for David. 
because his father had done him shame. Who does the plural pronoun him apply to? Saul had just done Jonathan shame. In the presence of those, of the, those inner circle of the kingdom, he had tried to put his son to the wall. He had done his son shame. But as far as Saul was concerned, brothers and sisters, he was grieved for David's sake. Because he was taking the pill on behalf of his friend. And the shame that Saul showed, showed to Jonathan was in Jonathan's mind a, sh- a shame which was heaped upon David. And that grieved Jonathan's heart. Now what about you and I? You put yourself in that situation. Dodging out of the way as a, as a heavy javelin thugs into the wall behind you and quivers into the wall which would have went right through you and you leap up in anger. But about that moment your soul being grieved because that which just went past you by a hair's breadth didn't worry you. All you could think about was that you'd made an appeal on behalf of your friend and it grieved Jonathan. But Saul had done David's shame. What a selfless character he was, brethren. What a selfless character he was. And so, Jonathan instructs his beloved friend, David, give him the advice, I can do no more, David. I'm sorry, I'm dreadfully sorry. You're going to come to the kingdom and my father knows it, but I can do nothing about it. Go in peace. And the two of them embrace, brothers and sisters, and they parted. Saul, rather Jonathan, back to his father, to follow his father faithfully in the wars against Israel's enemies, to preserve the people of God, to do all that he could, even though he was a member of a society that was corrupt. He was determined to be loyal to the end, to the best of his ability, that he might, in some way or other, direct Saul, his father, in, in right cause, and perhaps by some token of divine intervention, might bring eventually the two of them together. And poor Jonathan laboured to the very end, brethren and sisters, to that effect. But, oh, it was no good. And David, we read in verse 1 of chapter 21, that he came to not. So as you the priest, the city of Nod, a city which, the word of it, which means fruit. Now, Nod, brethren and sisters, was, it must have been, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. At this time, Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites. But nonetheless, the city of Israel's priest was a, the city of Nod, which means fruit, and it must have been right outside, or just outside the walls of Jerusalem, because it's quite obvious from the considerations of the prophecy of Isaiah, when he speaks about the march of the Assyrians, when he camped at Nob, he looked at the city of Jerusalem. So that, I believe Nob would have fallen somewhere between Kirchath, Jerusalem and Jerusalem. And there in the northern extremities of the hills of Judea, which, closed, which were closed with the city of Jerusalem, was the city of Nob, and there was the city of the priests. And David went to Nob. Perhaps the region of Samuel was no longer safe to him. They had discovered his, his hiding place there. Perhaps that the, the influence of Samuel was waning so fast that David thought he couldn't go there. So where would he go next? He would obviously go where the priests of Yahweh were. There he was most at home, brethren and sisters. He would think those of like precious faith. And so to the city of Nob he went. For the few of the young men that followed him. And you know the story of Holabarbi. He comes into the tabernacle. And Ahimelech is there. He's tired. He's worn out, he's desperate, he's hungry. Don't we do? What are you doing, Dave? What was going on? Look, I don't like you here. Look, what's, what's all this about? I, I, uh, I was afraid. Little man says, David, look, I'm on an errand of the king. Lie? Yes, I suppose it was a lie. But this is what he told him. I'm on an errand of the king. Look, I want some food. 
We're all sorry, though, but what happened here? It happened to be the Sabbath. And during the course of the Sabbath day, of course, they changed the showbread. And they brought the fresh loaves in, and the priests were permitted by the law of Leviticus 24 to eat the other showbread in the precincts of the court of the tabernacle. And only the priests were chosen to eat that. And they had to eat it within the precincts of the court of the tabernacle. They weren't to move outside. It was holy food. And Ahimelech suggested to David, under these circumstances, that if David was desperate and hungry, then perhaps he would give them this hollow bread. And he asked them about certain ceremonial impurities, of which they were free. And on, the, on that basis, they took of these showbread. Which according to the strict letter of the law, they were not lawful to do. And the Pharisees picked that point up, and the Lord's disciples were walking through the standing ears of corn, breaking the legal, legal uh, details of the law. The law said, have you never read what David did and those who were with him? How they took the showbread and the blindness. What made them blindness? The priests, brethren and sisters, had to eat that hallowed bread within the precinct of the court of the tabernacle. David was never out. He was never outside the court of the tabernacle. To all his wandering, brethren and sisters, his mind was directed in one direction only to the tabernacle. When he had a bride of the priest with him who wore an ephod, which was woven with the same materials and colour as the veil itself, he was inquiring at the veils. And a man was carrying on his chest the tabernacle because the ephod was the, the same colours and material as the veil where the priest went to inquire before Yahweh. David had a walking tabernacle with him. He was never outside the court of the tabernacle. And all those, those priests moved inside that tabernacle. Literally, there was nobody more in that tabernacle than what David was. And Paul says, you and I, we're the tabernacle of the truth. And God says, I will walk in there. I will walk in there. And if ever God was walking in anybody, he was walking in David. He had a second and none client to that showbread. And if the priests, brothers and sisters, were in the service of the Lord, and because they served God, they were given the showbread on the Sabbath day, that they might perform their duties well, because they worked twice as hard on that day. If they were permitted to do this, to keep up the service of Yahweh, why was not David to do this? And there was nobody in Israel serving Yahweh more than this young fellow. And the Lord pointed these things out to the Pharisees. And pointed out to them the fact that the priests worked twice as hard on the Sabbath day. And pointed out to them that the principles of the truth are that they who labor for God, God will provide. And that's what the tabernacle was teaching. And David had a first class claim, brethren and sisters, to eat at that shepherd in the air. But somebody was watching you either. And look at it well in verse 6. Though a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. We're not told why he was detained. And his name was Doeg. His name was Doeg. And he happened to be an Edomite. And he happened to be the cheapest of the herdsmen of Saul. Have you ever heard anything like that in your life? Look, brethren and sisters, this is what was happening. The kingdom of Saul was going downhill, degradation. 
Now, as you witness the difference between David and Saul, you see, David moving away from the established order of things in the ecclesial world. That's what he was doing. And I'm not inciting anybody to write. Far be it for me, but this is a fact of the case. David was moving away from the established order of things. But he was carrying with him the principles which the truth is forever still. That in the center of Saul's dominion, which should have been the pillar and ground of the faith, what do we find? We find that Edomite is the chief shepherd. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Because the word herdsman then means shepherd. He was the chief shepherd of Saul's dominion. Who was Edomite? Now, have you ever heard of anything like that in your life? No wonder Saul was looking for his father's apples. No wonder the Athens of Israel were wandering. The chief shepherd was an Edomite. And the Edomites hated Israel with a hatred that defied the scriptures. And David was no exception. And he had control in the ecclesia of God. This is the sort of thing that was going on. And when David saw it, he knew straight away that it meant trouble. You look at chapter 22 and verse 26. David said unto the Bible, I knew it. I knew it that day when Dag's Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasion the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Go there. The man whose name means afraid, anxious and afraid. And perhaps his name might have been the epitome of his character, I don't know. But if it was, you can imagine a cringing popular. Anxious and afraid. This cringing little lie. A lowly lie. There he was, watching David. <laughs> the chief chef of Saul's dominion. A man of the hated race of Edom. And David saw it. Oh. He would have said to himself, Oh, that's trouble. He knew character, brothers and sisters. The chief shepherd, I keep repeating that. The chief shepherd of Israel. And David knew his character. And true to his character, then Saul called a council as to what he should do about David. True to his character, this man answered up, brother and sister. This man answered up, and he caused the death of the priests of Israel. And in chapter 22, in verse 7, and Saul said unto his servants who stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites. Through the son of Jesse, give every one of you fields and vineyards. And make all of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. For all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son has made a league with the son of Jesse. And there's none of you that's sorry for me. <laughs> Look at the selfishness of that. There's none of you that's sorry for me. Or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Saul is going downhill fast, brethren and sisters. Look at the appeal he's done. You Benjamite. You Benjamite. You can imagine that word because he come out, you know, we're talking about ten syllables. Benjamites. <laughs> Will the son of Jesse of Judah stick money in your pockets if he comes to the room? What an appeal. What a shocking appeal for loyalty that was. And my word was effective. Did all of you that conspired against me but nobody was so sorry to tell me. But David lies in wait. What 
Satan was a hypocrite. David didn't have the men to lie in wait against him. And no one said a word except Joab the Edomite. And he's a man for the son of Jesse coming to God to inhibit the son of the high type. And then he told a deliberate lie. And he inquired of Yahweh for him. There's no record of it. There's no record of, of Ahimelech acquiring the, of Yahweh for David. Some have suggested that if David would have been a, a man of that character, would have obviously inquired of Yahweh the priest. But there's no record of it, and Ahimelech says that he didn't. Did I then, in verse 15, begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. And Ahimelech demanded, and I believe Ahimelech. Because in Psalm 52, brothers and sisters, David calls David a liar, and a liar he was. And in Psalm 52, a psalm written on this occasion, as the heading of that psalm tells us, to the chief musician, Master, a psalm of David, when David the Edomite came and told Saul, and said unto him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And David said, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Yet he was the chief shepherd. The goodness of God endures continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischief. Like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to seek righteousness. And this was the situation that had, that had come into the kingdom of Saul. And you don't have to use your imagination to see the, the Benjamites gathered around him. And this man making a fleshly appeal for loyalty and then blubbering about the, the persecution which God was heaving upon him and appealing to the sympathy of men, to the men on the face of the thing that was probably not true and then decrying his own son as if Jonathan was plotting Saul's death. Well, if Jonathan wished Paul was a Saul and David could shake hands and burn him and he would have been the happiest boy alive. But Saul didn't see it that way, and going to Edomite, striding out among the Benjamites, seizing the opportunity, brethren, that he'd been waiting for for a long time, as is evident from this record, and coming forward, I saw him. <laughs> yes, he saw him all right, just give him a slave creature. And he was down there, saw him eat the bread. He got a sword too. And a himalet required of God of him. Bring him up here to the and he is the king of Israel. The recording brother of the ecclesia of God. And his counsellor, an Edomite. And the counsellor is accusing him against the brethren, the priests who were appointed by Yahweh to disseminate the law. And the king of Israel calls them up, indicts them. Ahimelech protests his, his, his innocence. And Ahimelech means the king's brother. And he would have been the king's brother too if the king had ever had it. Even if would have died to have been the king's brother. And he protested his innocence. But to the eternal credit of Ahimelech, he didn't run David there. He was honest. And he stuck to his honesty. And he, he said that his loyalty was to the king. But he said, I can't understand you, Saul. What's wrong with the boy? I don't see any wrong in him. Who is more faithful in all your house than David? And to his eternal he never ran David down in a situation which was in peril of his life. And Saul's anger was so much in charge of him, so blinded his mind, brethren, through the truth of the word of God, that he saw before him, not the representatives of the word of Yahweh, 
But he saw before him those who were the friends of David, and the enemy which had now taken complete control of him, had a look, had overthrown all his judgment, not his better judgment, he had no judgment now. And in a mad, a mad, a mad, mad, crazy thing that he did, they called upon him to be killed. What a stupid thing that was to take out of the nation in one third blow, the only men who could hold it together. And nobody moved to do it. Because those Benjamites were start the fact that they knew they could get all out of store if they wanted. Nobody moved because this was something to them was horrifying. What? Take out of the nation in one third swoop? The very men that were holding together? Look, they couldn't do this. One man could. With the greatest delight, going the And he turned and he fell upon the priests, and he slew eighty-five of them that wore a linen ephod. What an expression! He slew eighty-five men that wore a linen ephod. Linen speaking of the fine righteousness of saints. The ephod, brethren and sisters, speaking of divine communication with men on the basis of the word. And an Edomite took them out of the way, except one. And one man escaped. Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. And he took down to David the only remaining ephod that was left. And he brought the tabernacle on his heart, where he wore the ephod. He brought it to David. And whilst an Edomite was taken out of Israel, the manifestation of God's word in that ecclesia. There was a man running them about and taking them about in the wilderness. Where was the truth? It was outside the camp. In the caves and dens of the earth. But Doeg wasn't going to miss his opportunity, but he had the opportunity of a lifetime. He was told to save the priests who were supposedly guilty on that occasion. He did so with great gusto, 85 of them. But oh, he's got the opportunity in his life. Never going to miss this. And he goes down to Nob. He's going to do a real good job. And he goes to Nob to see the priest and he smokes them with the edge of the sword. Men, women, children, suckling, oxen, asses, sheep with the edge of the sword. Look who he slew. Men, women, children. That's one group. And he slew sheep oxen and asses. All of them were symbols of the ecclesia of God. And he was the chief shepherd. What a shepherd. What a shepherd. And this was the man who got into the ecclesia of God and who got in, brethren and sisters, because a brother was in control who had lost all his judgment for one thing. Bitter envy. And envy is the cruelest thing in the world. It's the cruelest thing in the world. And in that blindness of envy, stupid blindness of envy, in one fell swoop, out of the midst of Israel, he uprooted the only people who could hold that nation together. And from that moment onward, even though Saul's kingdom was rushing headlong to destruction, it went down like that, brethren and sisters, in the doom, because those who could disseminate the word of God were gone. And the only ones that were left were way up there in the room. Way from the center. And the nation was beginning to fragment. Fragment and fold up and people were becoming dismayed, confused. People were being frightened. 
and Saul's kingdom was collapsing. And I'm going to show you when he went on to the mountains of Gilboa, brethren, I want to bring the record that they Chronicles and Samuel, and show you how the men and women were shooting out of that kingdom, screaming away from Manasseh, from Gilead. They were swimming across the river Jordan, charging across the hills of Judea, coming down from the plain of Sharon. Everywhere they were flocking to David because they knew, they knew that it was all gone. And Saul took his feeble men to the hills of Gilboa. All afraid and trembling, bad many because there was no cohesion between them. The word of God was gone, and the word of God was found in the land of the Philistines with David. And it all began with an Edomite, who was the chief shepherd of the Ecclesia. What a dreadful thing it was. Today, brothers and sisters, that when we come back to the 21st chapter, that after this occasion of God, we read in verse 10 that David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. And he went to Achish, king of Gath. That was a mistake. He fled to the land of the Philistines. And you see, when he fled the first time from Saul, where did he go? He went to Ramah. And he found the influence of the power of the world so great that it was protected When he fled the second time, he went to the brethren down at Nob, and he found in the company of the brethren at Nob sustenance which was divinely provided in the showbread. And whenever he gathered with his brothers and sisters of that nature, he found health and strength. And now in desperation, with these two doors closed to him, David goes to the very other extreme, and he goes down to Achish, king of Gath. And Gath, of course, was the hometown of one of David's friends. <laughs> and he took a chance on this and he perhaps thought who knows what David's thinking was on this occasion nobody could perhaps probably I suppose even conjecture why David should run to Achish king of Gath we know this about Achish and this is for sure we know about Achish he was one of the easiest guys that was ever born look you could pull the wool over his eyes a thousand times and he would never be aware you could twist him around your finger he was one of those easy-going people. And when you read the record of Achish, this is the characteristic of the man. And David was able time and time again to fool this king. And perhaps, I don't know, but he's saying as a matter of conjecture here, perhaps that David knew of this man's characteristics. Perhaps he thought that if he took a risk, he might better get through to Achish. Because he did later on, in a most remarkable fashion. And of course, Gath was the chief town of the Philistines, as I will show you later on in the record of Samuel. This time, Gath was called the bridal of the mother city. It was a bridal by which the whole end of the Philistines was driven. And the man in charge was an easy going guy. Oh, well, he was an enemy once, but how are you, fella? Oh, not bad, Achish. And so there was a vengeance that was between David and Achish later on. And it wasn't until the other lords of the Philistines got Achish and said, Now listen, here. Do you know who that fellow is? Oh, well, he's David. Yes, but he's the guy that killed the lion. Oh, but he's changed. Has he? And they had to overrule him. But they didn't. That would be serious trouble. But this was Achish. And perhaps for this reason, David felt that he could perhaps go and gain refuge there. So in the hometown of Goliath, he sought refuge. What a tragedy, Bergman, this is. What a tragedy that a brother in the truth had to go down there to seek refuge. Oh, that, that's a tragedy. Because he didn't find refuge. Instead of that, as he walked in the gap, oh yes, he knows him. And it wasn't long before David said to the atmosphere was against him. Oh, he's in trouble now. He shouldn't have come here. But he could feel the feeling of the crowd building up. And he knew that if he stayed here long enough, that he'd lose his head. 
And so he thought that, well, perhaps his expression was a better part of that. And so David, the boy with the ruddy countenance, with the bright eyes, the boy who was comely of speech, a valiant man, a man of war, a cunning of time, has to defend, Raymond Christie, defend to finding himself a lunatic. We are on a tragedy. And you can imagine David's feelings at this time. A man who never had, in that, at that time anyway, who never had such a beautiful mind on the things of God. He could speak and talk and think of lofty things such as we could never ever comprehend even. Had to defend for the sake of his life, describing upon a door, letting his fiddle roll down his face, <laughs> and finding himself crazy for his life. What a tragedy that was. And you know, David came to psalm about this occasion in Psalm 34. And he spoke about the way in which he had to try and defend himself against the enemies of God. He said in life. In Psalm 34, we read in verses 6 and 8, 6 to 8, this poor man cried and, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. This poor man cried. Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of Yahweh encountered the right about them that fear him and deliver them. And how many times the Christian elders quote those words? When you quote them again, brethren and sisters, when you quote them again, the angel of Yahweh encountered about the children of God, when you quote those words, you think of David on his knees, scrambling at a door with a spittle rolling on his face, Finding himself a lunatic for his life, but in his mind, clear as crystal, beautifully clear. And he saw around him and between him and Achish and the people of Gath in a very desperate and dangerous situation, he saw a world of angels, nothing to worry about. But that didn't mean that David could stun around Gath and say, I'm the guy that killed the lot. Couldn't do that. Oh no, saving himself mad, desperately seeking a way out, but never doubting, brothers and sisters, that although he had adopted this expedient, that his prayer was going to be heard. This poor man, and my word, was not poor on that occasion. Finding himself a madman. Verse 17, the righteous cry of Yahweh here and deliver us then out of all their troubles, for Yahweh is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save as such as are of a contrite spirit. And wouldn't he have had a contrite spirit? Wouldn't he have had a contrite spirit? Finding himself a lunatic, my word, brothers and sisters, he was in a desperate situation. And when that psalm was penned, these were the thoughts, of course, which went through the mind of David. And I want to conclude this evening at a consideration of when he came back to the cave of the dust. And we come back to the record of Samuel in chapter 22. And we remember the time when we read in the first of Samuel 22 after Achish had said, well, look, I don't want nothing to do with a man and taking away from me. Read in the 22nd chapter that David therefore departed then and escaped the cave of Dullam. The word means a hiding place. A Dullam, brethren and sisters, is about two miles, two to three miles from the side of where he killed Goliath at a place called Shotgun, just below here, uh, just below Hebron. And a, the cave of Dullam was just below Hebron and the entered the, to the west. And only a couple of miles from the area where he killed Goliath, and David found a strength in the cave of Adullam, so that it became known in the record as the hold. You read on several occasions of the hold. 
David went to the hall, and behold, became known as the cave of the Bellum Rider, became known as that. And it means a hiding place. And it's rather significant, I feel, that, that David should find a hiding place within the area where he came first in the province against Israel. Now then, brethren and sisters, the hour has come where the kingdom of Saul is beginning to totter and it's becoming evident to all those up there who had eyes to see and ears to hear. What are they going to do? Too late now to try and save the pleasure of God. Be peace to God. Don't let the Edomites in supreme control of the chief. Shut it. Saul's mad. Saul's saying about his 10,000. 10,000. 10,000 they say. That's all he can figure out. He's crazy. Don't let the Edomites dictating the terms of the pleasure of God. An Edomite. And they could see it. And the truth was ebbing out of Israel like life blood going out of the body. Ebbing away. And so we read that all David's father's house heard of it when he was in the cave of the dust cave of the Dullab and went down thither to him. And I can see David in those huge caverns there at the Dullab. We never, I never visited there. Anyway, this year, with the group, the group, the previous year went and saw the caves of the Dullab and they were very privileged. But I can picture those caves in my mind, having seen photographs of them, having studied the region, I can picture those huge caverns which would hold thousands of men if necessary. And I can picture David's father, Jeffrey and his house, coming down to him. And I can picture David drinking a lion. Hello, Lion. Hello, David. How are you? Very well. Take refuge in here. The man would have said, You naughty little boy, you've come here to do the battle. Go home and mind those few sheep was now a member of that flock. And the boy who was charged of it was his brother, his younger brother. You know, David was a wonderful man, brother and sister. He never held that against his brother. Do you know that when David became king over a much larger flock, he put a lie on the prince of the tribe of Judah? Would you have done that? Would you have done it? Despite the fact that a lie may have evidence in his life from that moment onwards, his excellent qualities which that office called for? I don't know whether I would have. I'd have probably kicked him somewhere. And stuck him away down the south, looking after a desert coast on the border of Egypt somewhere. But David didn't. He made him prince of Judah. He was a big man. He was a warm man. He was a wonderful man. He was a man that could love. And you know, I believe them. This was at the very fact that David was so warm and so vibrant and so loving was one of the reasons why he sinned. Some people, you know, never do the things that David did. But because seven eighths of them are ice. David wasn't like that. He was a warm, vibrant creature. And I can see him with all his father's house in there, like a loving shepherd that he's got. And now they just recognize him as the shepherd. But they weren't the only ones who were coming today. There were men coming every day to the cave of the Dullam until the crowd was building up. And as they came to the door of the cave, and greeted David, you could hear them saying, Oh, 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 oh that's kingdom, oh, you were looking more tough. Oh, you didn't like it, I'll be all of this like, oh, I'll be nothing to him. And as they went to that cave, they persisted, they became a crowd of 400. And look who they were, everyone that was in distress. Everyone that was in debt. That's a good way to get out of here, <laughs> And everyone that was discontented, the margin says, dinner and soul. 
And you know, brothers and sisters, this became one of the greatest tests of David's character. And we're going to see him with these 400 who later on grew to 600. And we're going to see him with those 600. And we're going to learn, brothers and sisters, what it means to be a shepherd. Oh, it's all right to be a shepherd. Just so long as you've got a little flock of lambs who are all bleeding away and who wouldn't harm a fly. But it's a vastly different proposition when in that flock you've got lambs with sheep clothing. That's a different proposition. And I'm going to say this, brothers and sisters, that I reckon that the, the attribute which David manifests in controlling that 600 on occasions when they were given opportunity to pay back all their debt, his attribute and be able to control them is a standing testimony to the man's character and to his personal influence. A man that could have a whisper in one cave with a whisper, say to 600 men, don't touch you. And amongst those 600 men, the men who could have got all his call and went, <laughs> like that. Men like Abishai, who took on 600 Philistines at one occasion. A man like Benaiah, who went, jumped down into a pit with a lion and scrambled up. A man like Joab, who waited for his whole life up his neck in blood. And with a word, David throws him. And here they come in the cave of the night. Bitter of salt. And David had a new problem. Oh, he got fired. So did I get fired. No problem. I can get fired. I know how to do it. And I could get a band of followers, brethren and sisters, but it'd be really powerful. And in the end, they'd kill me. All I'm going to do is run down the opposition. Give it, followers. There are plenty of Malcolm Keith. There are plenty of those with bitter stuff. Get into the corner of the hall somewhere and start a campaign of running down the opposition. See, the crowds will get around you. And my word will make you feel important too. And then men will be very clear they'll follow you to death. What they mean by death is the death of the enemy. When it comes, brothers and sisters, to personal integrity to the things of God, when it comes to honesty to that book, when it comes to agitate love of you for the truth's sake, oh, well, now that's a vastly different thing. And when you start talking about the beauty of the Word of God, when you start talking about the love of God which embraces even your enemies, you find that that crowd will drift. Oh, you can hear it your friends, no problems at all. Pilate and Herod became friends. They hated the side of each other, but they became friends because they had a common hate of the Lord. No problems there. The Arabs are friends. On one issue alone, on one issue alone, hatred towards Israel. But they can't agree in Morocco. And David had, in that crowd of 400, he had some wonderful men. Make no mistake about that, they weren't all like that. But there were in the 600 were men who were described in the record of Scripture as men of Belial. And they were in that 600. And yet they became loyal followers of Saul, of David, for one reason, to see Saul's skin. Many of them. And this was David's new flock. What a responsibility he had. 
And he had a key into those meetings, brothers and sisters. He had to inspire them with the truth of God's word to such an extent that he called upon their allegiance, not to him, but to Yahweh. And he had to be said on many occasions, you're too hard for me. And he wrote a psalm about those men. Psalm 57, if we read about this. And in the 57th Psalm, we read about David's experiences amongst his new flock. Look at the heading of the psalm. To the chief musician, when David fled from Saul in the cave, when David fled from Saul in the cave, and in the 57th Psalm, David says in verse 4, My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. And you can imagine, brothers and sisters, as night came over the cave of the Dullam, and David laid down his head in those huge caverns, and he heard the heavy breathing of those four hundred, and he said the words of that star, I lie among lions. Here and there in the night, you know. And David could see them there, just like a great team of lions, ready at a moment's notice to tear the king of the sword of Peter. And their teeth in there, they're like spears and arrows. And they're all set on fire. So was Jeremiah, by the word of God. But these men were blazing the rain. And that was David's youth life. In the providence of God, brothers and sisters, when David set up his kingdom, many of those 400 men found honoured places in the kingdom, and justly so. They were changed, many of them. And they followed David in all his temptations. And they could not help but be impressed. Couldn't help but be impressed with the wonderful character of this man. You've only got to see them looking down from the hill of Hakala in the moonlight, as it must have been light because of the events that are described there. They must have been able to see at a certain distance. You're only going to see them at the hill of Hakala as David comes down that hill with Abishai, the brother of Joab. What a character. And see him standing there right over the top of Saul, heavy in sleep, and Abishai saying, Let me have one hitch. <laughs> <laughs> and watching this going on, there was one of the lions looking down at him. Oh, just one, David. Leaving me. And maybe he's about to slope to the head of Hakalai again. And they saw this, brethren, this is not on one occasion, on several occasions. And they saw the way he acted, and, sh- and change came over many of them. Some were never changed. And between nephews, Joab, Abishai, I have to Sons of David's sister, hard as nails, brave, brave as lions, but hard as nails, some of them, Job in particular, never change. And yet, brothers and sisters, there were these 400 who followed David in all his temptations and then became officers in the kingdom of God, and we are the flock of Christ. And we're set on fire, many of us. And it's not always the fire of the will of God. And yet, what do we find? We find that in circumstances of life where our shepherd is called upon, 
in the record of truth that we read upon him, read about it, to curse his answers, to kill his side. And we wonder and we marvel at this. And you know, I dare say that the effect of that shepherd upon our lives, brothers and sisters, is powerful because of these things. And I think as we go through life and we realize this, that as we slip upon the rocks and come near the crashing over the precipice, and our shepherd draws us back by his crook and by his staff, that we learn, don't we, not brothers and sisters and young people, that we're the recipients of the mercy of God in having shepherds who care and love for us, and our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who drives us through life, that we ought to exercise the same principles towards others. No. I think it's too much. I don't think it is. And in this age of generation, which is now closing upon the approval of God. And I, look, we're saying this all the time, you don't believe it, because we've heard it that often. Well, it just doesn't have an impact upon us, but let's, we can say it again. It won't hurt saying it again. The age is closing upon us. We need shepherds. And it doesn't mean that we've all got to become leaders of the creatures. It means we're going to try and help. And if there's 400 years, it's not. If there's a couple of hundred years, let us be like those men that became, and women, who became prominent in Saul's kingdom. Because, brothers and sisters, they saw in him those wonderful attributes of a real shepherd whose whole aim in life was the salvation of that flock. So that when Yahweh had exalted his kingdom, David perceived that he had done that because of the people of Israel.